You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. Caroline Hyde's off today. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, we'll bring you the latest updates in the Israel-Hamas war and speak to a range of guests on the ground to discuss the state of technology, the industry, its communities in the region. And we'll sit down with the CEO of payments firm Klarna to discuss the company's investment in artificial intelligence. Plus, we'll get a preview of the Bloomberg Screen Time event in Los Angeles that's bringing together executive and industry insiders to talk the state of streaming and so much more. Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and opposition leaders have agreed to form a rare emergency government to see the country through its war with Hamas. Joining us now to talk through the situation, not just in Israel, not just in the Gaza Strip, but in West Bank as well, is Mona Shatea, a non-resident fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy. You come to us live from Ramallah in the central West Bank. And that's where I'd like to start, uh, Mona. Based on you know, your industry connections, the work that you're doing, what is the situation in the central West Bank right now for the technology industry? Thank you, Ed, for having me here. Uh, so when, when, whenever we are talking about tech uh, as we are living in the West Bank, uh, we cannot ignore that Palestinians are living under surveillance states where uh, different uh, kinds of surveillance technologies have been uh, developed and tested on Palestinians in an open laboratory uh, in the occupied Palestinian territory in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Um, and to state but not like this is not limited to, we are talking about uh, CCTV cameras, facial recognition technologies, spywares, malwares, uh, uh, technologies such as Blue Wolf, White Wolf, uh, and as well as Red Wolf drones, among other uh, various technologies that have been developed by the Israeli government and the Israeli companies, testing that on Palestinians before selling that worldwide to profit from 
that. And unfortunately, sometimes major tech companies are investing in um, in such companies, in such uh, surveillance companies to develop certain technologies, as it happened um, like a couple of years ago with the, uh, Microsoft that tried to invest uh, $75 million in Anivision, which is an Israeli company, to develop facial recognition technique, uh, testing that on Palestinians before it starts selling that worldwide. That, like, was one, part of that? Yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Mona. I mean, one reason we, we've asked you onto the program is your expertise in cybersecurity and emerging technologies. That's some of the work that you do at the MEI. Based on what you just outlined to us as what you think is happening, how operational are technology startups in the West Bank? Has their day-to-day -day and ability to do business, whether they're a software-focused company or a hardware-focused company, been impacted? Well, whenever we're talking about tech industries in the West Bank, it's different than the tech industry uh, industries in Israel because I've started talking about cyber uh, cyber technologies like uh, surveillance technologies that have been used. None of those technologies are basically developed or developed by Palestinians or in the Palestinian territory. All of those technologies are developed by Israeli tech, uh, companies. Uh, as far as I can remember, there are 28 uh, uh, surveillance companies in Israel, eight out of them are led by ex-military people in Israel. And uh, like this could give us like a clear example on how <clears throat> this is a military state, even if those, <clears throat> sorry, even if those technological companies are developing that, it's also connected with the uh, military expertise for their executives or se senior executives in so many cases. When it comes to the West Bank, uh, like the whole uh, startups scene is different. It's more about services. We've seen like delivery companies, e-shopping companies, among other kinds of companies that are more about service, not exactly about uh, developing technologies such as like the surveillance technology technologies, as I mentioned, whether it's hardware or software. Amona, you, you name-checked and mentioned Microsoft. Uh, we will reach out to Microsoft for comment on that issue of cybersecurity surveillance in the region. Bear with me. I want to bring our audience another story which broke on Wednesday morning, and that is the European Union writing to Mark Zuckerberg, the chief executive officer of Meta, and asking the company, Meta, parent of Facebook, of course, to look into disinformation around the situation in Israel uh, and, and what is happening on the ground. You'll remember as well, uh, Mona, that the EU and Thierry Breton had already written to Elon Musk and asked X to explain what it is doing in fighting disinformation. Some of your research and your background is in social media. What role is social media playing there from the West Bank perspective? We have reported on this program that on multiple platforms, there are videos that are sharing, being shared on those platforms purporting to show one thing when in fact they are showing another. But what role broadly is social media playing here? So social media platforms are reflecting what's happening on the ground. As soon as the escalations on the ground are starting, we can witness more activism on social media platforms, as well as more hate speech, incitement, violent speech, as well as misinformation and propaganda speech on the social media platforms. In the current situation, we can clearly see an increase in hate speech, violent speech, and incitement against Palestinians 
platforms, on the social media platforms. And unfortunately, social media platforms are not investing enough resources to prevent uh, to prevent spreading such uh, such speech, and they are relying on the limited resources civil society organizations to monitor that and escalate that to them, which basically contribute to to the real world harm that Palestinians are exposed to. Now, while we are speaking, while I'm speaking with you, there are Israeli settlers who are based in the illegal settlements in the West Bank are attacking some Palestinians in some cities. And earlier this yes. year, they were burning certain cities such as Huwara based on this incitement and hate, hate, hate speech on the social media platforms. And Bloomberg has not verified the incidents that, that you just outlined. What I would just say, and we showed it a moment ago, we sh can show it again, is that ex's CEO Linda Yaccarino sent a memo to the entire company overnight saying we are reminded of our consequential responsibility to protect the public conversation uh, and an action that shows uh, that, that they are, are looking into this and taking it seriously. Mona, finally, I, I want to ask you this question that's been debated on this program by technology industry participants uh, in Israel, uh, in the West Bank, elsewhere, and it's the the, the sort of symbiosis between Israeli tech and Palestinian tech. In other words, they're very closely tied. Is that something that you recognize, that they actually act as a much broader but single industry? Yes, of course, because Israel see in the Palestinian workers as cheap labor for them. So they could sometimes subcontract their certain works for Palestinians. And as you know, like with the limited uh, with the limited uh, uh, working opportunities for Palestinian young people, as well as with the limited also access to the e-payment services, which basically affect Palestinians from accessing to the international market. For example, Pay PayPal is not operating for Palestinians who are living in the West Bank, neither in the nor in Gaza Strip. So as a result of that, Palestinians are not even allowed or able to work as a freelancers and then get, get paid by, by PayPal. As a result of that, they are forced sometimes to do subcontracting work for Israeli companies uh, who are like who are working on whether software or hardware uh, technologies. But this is, again, we can't see this uh, separately from the the, the situation for, from the political economic situation that Palestinians are living under and from the power asymmetry relationship between the Israelis and Palestinians in this region. Mona Steyer, a non-resident fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy, coming us to us live from Ramallah in the Central West Bank. Thank you. Coming up on Bloomberg Technology, we will continue the conversation on the Israel-Hamas conflict and speak to a venture capitalist who's focused on bringing Palestinian graduates into Israeli tech companies, an issue that Mona just touched on there. We're also looking at shares of Microsoft. Uh, this is a company that's put out a statement on Wednesday morning saying they have 3,000 staff or personnel in Israel that they say are impacted by events. It's not doing anything to support or hinder the stock really in either direction, but Microsoft currently up half a percentage point. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. 
That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. into a wider conflict, say, and that causes oil prices to go up, that does have an effect on the economies. When you look at the numbers, suppose oil prices say, went up by around 10%, mm-hmm. then about 12 months later, you see inflation going up by around 0.4 percentage points. Global output is lower by about 0.15 percentage points. So it can have uh, these kinds of effects, but again, it's too early to, to tell exactly what's going to happen. That was the IMF's first Deputy Managing Director, Gita Gopinaf, discussing the economic implications of the Israel-Hamas war. I want to turn to an Israeli entrepreneur who spent the last decade devoted to helping build a stronger Palestinian economy and Israeli tech sector. Joining us now is Yadin Kaufman, a founding partner at Veritas Venture Partners, who's also the founder of the Palestinian Internship Program, a professional development non-profit that aims to empower Palestinian grads and professionals in developing and building their careers. And and Yadin, let's start there. Your your basic aim has been to take uh, Palestinian graduates or professionals, as we said, and put them into jobs in the Israeli tech sector. In the first instance, how have you been impacted by the weekend's attack and your ability to do that? Okay, well, the first thing, the first thing I want to say just before we get into those specifics is, uh, you know, I think like every Israeli, I've been uh, very impacted by what's uh, happened here since uh, Shabbat morning, since Saturday morning. And it's been an absolutely terrible time here, um, as you know, 1,200 people killed, many, most of them civilians, uh, terrible atrocities committed, hostage, uh, many hostages taken, and just absolute uh, atrocities uh, committed. So it's very hard to, to focus, about, uh, focus on other things. Um, but as far as the impact, uh, look, I believe that we still need to try to build a better future here, and that by definition uh, will involve Israelis and Palestinians working together. Uh, we both live in this, uh, this part of the world. Neither of us is going anywhere. And we have to choose. Do we want a future like the past has been, including the events of the last weekend? Uh, or do we want to try to create something better? So in the immediate term, 
uh, it's going to be extremely difficult uh, to advance programs that uh, have Israelis and Palestinians working together. For one thing, Israelis uh, in the tech sector, which is where I've been working, um, many of them have been called up to reserve duty. Uh, many of them are either zero or one degree of separation from someone who's been killed and are, are very focused on, uh, you know, unfortunately, burying the dead. Uh, grieving for the dead and uh, having to defend the country. Uh, so that's obviously job, uh, job one for everyone. Um, secondly, I think it's important uh, for us to uh, distinguish between the West Bank and Gaza. Um, the problems of this past weekend have been uh, from Gaza, and uh, that's, it's going to be even more difficult uh, than it has been until now to do any business between or do anything constructive between Israel and Gaza. That's going to take a while right now, uh, as it rightly should. Um, with the West Bank, however, I think things can be different. Uh, the West Bank has been, for the most part, uh, quiet during this, uh, this most recent turn of events. Obviously, there's no love lost between the PA and Hamas, so maybe it's not surprising. The things I've been doing have been focused on working with Palestinians from the West Bank and East Jerusalem uh, to give them opportunities and to give them opportunities in the Israel tech sector because uh, there's really nowhere else for them to get those opportunities. And uh, I'm happy to talk more about the programs, but uh, sure. you know, so, so I think it's important to distinguish between the immediate term and uh, the somewhat longer term. And of course, that depends uh, greatly on whether this uh, conflict remains limited to uh, the events of these past few days, the terrible events of these past few days, or whether it escalates to involve a, a broader regional war. And then, you know, all bets are off. Uh, yeah, Dean. Twenty-four hours ago, we were joined by. Um, somebody called Mahmoud Kwais. He's the CEO of a company called Tech Clinic based in East Jerusalem. But what he told us was that while he had operations in Jerusalem and Ramallah, he did have a number of staff working from home uh, in the Gaza Strip. And he was explaining to us how they were impacted um, in their ability to do their day job. I, I, I just put that to you so that I can ask about the talent pools, the Palestinian technology talent pools that you work with, principally where do they come from and in what kind of roles are you placing them into? Okay, so um, again, let's distinguish between uh, the West Bank and East Jerusalem on the one hand and Gaza on the other hand. Uh, look, the, the Palestinian tech sector is still very, very small. Uh, it's bigger and uh, more advanced than it was when I, I and others started working on this, uh, you know, 15 years ago or so. But it's still very small. You can't you can't think of it in terms of the Israeli startup nation, which is, you know, one of the leading tech centers in the world. However, um, there are some young, for the most part, very talented, ambitious, and uh, exceptional Palestinian tech entrepreneurs. Um, again, my experience is mainly with people in, in the West Bank, and I think it's extremely important for all of us, for Palestinians as well as for Israelis, that we encourage those, uh, those few entrepreneurs uh, so that they'll set an example and be able to employ other Palestinians and uh, show the way for other young Palestinians to go into tech entrepreneurship, which has transformed Israel. And I believe that it can perhaps similarly transform the Palestinian economy. Um, so we have to give them the tools, and the programs I've started are, are aimed at uh, giving young Palestinians the tools and the experience and the networks uh, and the know-how 
to go back and build up a, a robust Palestinian tech sector, which can help drive the economy there, and I think change the region, help change the region for all of us. Uh, we do that through the internship program, which, by the way, is not aimed at bringing Palestinians to come work long-term at companies in Israel. The idea is to bring them for a short period, typically three months. Very often, they're asked to stay on for an additional period, uh, and then give them those tools with which they can go back and help build the, uh, the Palestinian economy. As far as Gaza is concerned, you know, it's, it's, I mean, one's heart is broken here for, for many reasons. Uh, but two months ago, we had a, a networking event. We do this once a year for the internship program that I started. Uh, and we bring together many of the Palestinians who've been interns, who've been in our internship program, who've been in the mentorship program, and we meet them up with many Israelis from the tech sector here. And it is just an incredibly heartwarming experience every time we do it. Uh, as I said, we did it two months ago, almost to the day, uh, August 8th. And there were about 100 Palestinians from the West Bank and East Jerusalem who came. Uh, there were almost an equal number of Israeli tech folks. And there were four young Gazan uh, tech entrepreneurs who managed to get permits to come to Herzliya and participate in this event. And, you know, these are the kind of people that need to uh, be given tools to, uh, as I say, to develop their own economy for the benefit of all of us. Now, I obviously am, am pained to think about um, you know, the prospects of those young Palestinian, of those young Gazans uh, today, given what's going on, I'm sure they will not be having an easy time of it. Uh, but, you know, I think we need to ask where, where, where one needs to look to, to place the blame for that unfortunate situation uh, in the immediate term. Uh, Yadin Kaufman, founder of the Palestinian Internship Program, thank you for your time today. Much appreciated here on Bloomberg Technology. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. Ed Ludlow here in San Francisco. Today, we're going to take a look at the rise of AI image recognition tools and how it's impacting our shopping experiences, among other things. Similar to Google Lens, which directs users to suggestions based on items they capture on their camera, Swedish tech startup Klarna is now entering the game with its own shopping lens and many other AI-powered products. CEO Sebastian C. Mayatikovsky joins us now for more. Sebastian, before we get into the technology conversation, I, I want to ask you about Israel and the war with Hamas. Klarna, if I'm right in saying, shuttered its, its operations in Tel Aviv in 2018. But you still have close ties to the country of Israel, a number of staff impacted. Please, could you just explain the company's response and, and how it has impacted Klarna? Well, I think, you know, it's obviously terrible, uh, sad news. I was in shock uh, myself on, on Saturday morning. And um, uh, but I mean, since we unfortunately don't have an office in Israel anymore, but we do have fantastic colleagues, many of who joined us at the time we had a uh, local presence. Uh, obviously, the only thing I think we have, have done is try to extend, uh, you know, our, uh, you know, try to extend our uh, the sadness and, and, and express the support to all of these colleagues internally. Not least my CTO uh, himself is Israeli, so uh, I think under these circumstances, unfortunately, maybe that's the only thing we can really do. Sebastian, thank you for, for discussing that with me. Uh, we're here to talk about AI, and, and this is a big move because 
not just on the Lens product, Google is going for it in sort of consumer-facing generative AI applications across multiple software use cases. Why did you do this? Why are you so confident in doing it? Well, I think first of all, like, it's interesting to observe that in the US market, search for products has basically primarily been dominated by Amazon, really, not even Google to that extent. Google Shopping has had some more success in some European countries. But uh, in 2021, we acquired what is one of, or maybe the leading and largest European uh, comparison, product comparison website. Uh, helps you find, you know, price at the right price, the right product. Uh, with the right shipping time, etc. And ever since then, we've been exploring this opportunity. And now, with the acceleration of AI, we think that the gap between the content itself, I mean, you watching a Netflix movie, or you seeing something in a, in a newspaper ad, or you seeing something in the physical world, can actually now you know, allow you to basically instantaneously um, make a purchase. Now, a lot of people have tried, to your point, and some have failed. I mean, Meta, the least, was trying with, you know, uh, with Facebook and, and Instagram shopping and shut that down. Um, but we see that the technology is there. We have, you know, over 50 million SKUs and products in our, in our databases. So there is now a fantastic opportunity to create a very different experience than what has been available and really close that distance between I see something I like and I have it in my mailbox. You, uh, you're actually releasing 13 different AI-powered products. Are you building the foundation model or large language models that power that yourselves? Or from a top technology perspective, you're agnostic and kind of going to established LLM builders? Well, look, we've had a, a close relationship with OpenAI um, that, you know, I had a, a privilege to speak to Sam already back in February. And since then, we've had a great partnership. But we also obviously explore and look at the other, uh, you know, Claude and other opportunities out there. We looked at Lewis as well. I think we are at Klona very, like, pragmatic. If we see, if we think that we can do something better than somebody else, then we do it ourselves. If we think that somebody else is doing it better, we much rather build on that and use that. And when it comes to a lot of the LLMs, I mean, the things that OpenAI is an example, uh, you know, uh, allows us to do is amazing. What we are thinking about, like, how do we bring that to consumers to something that actually creates value for consumers uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, combining the amazing technology that OpenAI and others have developed with, you know, the amazing technology that we have internally. So that's really been our focus primarily. Like there may be something where, you know, you want to build your own LLM eventually or, you know, specialize. But right now, what can we bring to consumers to help their lives become better? Like um, that, that's, the, that's the key objective here. Sebastian, one of the data points that Klarna is putting forward is that 76% of consumers are still shopping in store. I, I would say there's probably a number of third-party data sets that are all over the place in terms of how many people go to a store. But how high risk is that for you? What if people just return to online shopping and Lens isn't needed? Oh, uh, well, I think that like what we've seen is like, you know, for a while there during COVID, we thought that nobody was going to return to physical stores. And now we've kind of seen that they have to a large degree. I think you, you'll have these fluctuations, but I think over time, more and more so, those two experiences will basically, you know, they will merge to some degree, right? I think or, uh, the more and more we see what's happening in retail, but also with product and brands, is that you will have pop-up stores, you will have brand representation. A lot of brand stores are really also have amazing marketing capabilities for those brands. So you'll see more and more of that presence, just like Apple has been one of the amazing companies who showed, showed the wave. I mean, an Apple store is as much a marketing uh, investment as it is an actual store itself, even though it's obviously one of the most successful retailers in that sense. But, but I think that like, uh, so we think those will merge. The point is that what we wanted to make sure with Klarna is that whether you're in physical store and using our photo lens, 
to basically either scan the, scan the barcode or just take an image of the image of the item itself, or whether you are scanning and looking at something on your screen, um, those two should really lead to the same opportunity of comparing alternatives, uh, understanding who can ship that product fastest, at what price, what are the options that you have, and then allow us to combine that with the personal preferences that our consumers have, um, because they all are slightly different. I think it's very natural for a credit card payments company to play that role. If you think about it, to some degree, this was kind of the promise of the Amex card, right? You were supposed to wave this card over platinum, whatever, and as a consequence, you know, your restaurant owner would say, oh my God, it's a platinum, so I'll bring you this wine or that, you know, this kind of service. So like the fact that a payments company signals to the retailer, to the seller, who is this customer, what are their preferences, what could they be interested in, and then helps, you know, create a smoothless experience in that, to accelerate trade for all of our merchants and partners. It, it feels like a very natural thing, but now with AI, we can do it at a very different level than was possible back in the Amex days. Klarna CEO, Sebastian Simiakovsky, great to catch up. Thank you for coming on the show. Much more ahead. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The largest public pension fund in the U.S., the California Public Employees Retirement System, or CalPERS, is looking for a new chief investment officer. I sat down with CalPERS CEO, Marcy Frost, to talk about the pension fund's investment strategy as it works to bring in that new CIO. We spoke about the role of venture capital and whether there are potential limitations in how a pension fund can be able to get into that growth stage round. Have a listen. Anton Orlick, who is the head of our you know, private equity team, that has been part of the playbook for him, bringing in venture deals. Some of those checks can be smaller, but when you're pairing up with other funds, uh, you can write a sizable check and still expect a nice return over time. But coming back into venture, we believe is the right strategy for the portfolio. We want to stay in the world of venture capital, but turn back to the ongoing and developing situation in Israel. We're joined now by John Medved, the founder and CEO of Our Crowd, global venture investment platform, big scale in, in the Israeli tech ecosystem. John, we, we, we've covered a lot of, of sort of the near term, what's happening on the ground. But from your perspective, could you kindly 
give me the kind of bigger picture on what this does for venture-backed deals in the tech Israeli system over a matter of months or years going forward? Will this have a lasting effect? Well, if you actually take that sort of frame of reference and you look several years down the road, there will be no question that we'll be bigger, stronger, more money invested. Uh, Israel has developed, as, as you know and have been covering, this incredible tech investment ecosystem. It's hard to find any significant venture players who aren't active in terms of backing Israeli companies. You know, Israel has this huge delegation of companies traded in New York. Uh, today, 100 unicorns are operational in Israel. Our crowd is perhaps the largest uh, democratic venture platform investing globally, but investing from Israel. So uh, clearly, over the next you know, couple of weeks and, and months, uh, depending upon how long these hostilities last, we're going to be facing challenges. But unfortunately, we have a lot of experience doing this and successfully. And if you look at the uh, past performance, every time we've gone through this uh, unfortunate uh, episodes, and uh, such as a war, it's hard to call it an episode, uh, we, yeah. we emerge at the end of the process stronger, bigger. And I think that based on just listening to some of your guests today, uh, Israel's strength in AI and in deep tech is going to bring lots of capital and lots of return to uh, venture investors in the Israeli market. Uh, John, I appreciate the, the sort of unique structure of, of our crowd, how investors can get access to private startups, 427 direct portfolio companies, and then there are fund companies as well. Has there been a need for cash injection um, oh. this week because of what's happened to, to continue oh, to it's, it's, be operational? It's not, no, it's not like that kind of... Uh, either send me money this week or, or in trouble. As you know, there's been a, a you know, quite marked uh, re retraction in the amount of venture money uh, committed by funds into ve uh, venture-backed startups. Worldwide, it's been 50, 60, 70 percent down uh, year to year, depending upon which area. Israel shares that downturn. So the problem we're facing is that you know, we are already in a capital-constrained environment where companies are cutting their costs, letting people go, you know, trying uh, uh, very, very hard to make sure that they can, uh, you know, get to break even or close and then make sure they can continue to develop their businesses. Then this comes along, and this is not great in terms of a, a capital-raising environment, but we're stepping it up. Okay, we're going to be, you know, launching many new deals and bringing more capital in. And we're heartened by what we've seen as the response of the global venture community to the Israeli tech community during the last several days. It's incredible. There's a site called Tech Condemning Terror, where there are simply this huge list of people who are supporting Israel and making actual uh, commitments into the nonprofit sector to help families that have been stricken by this or people who are in need. And, you know, leading funds like Insight or uh, General Catalyst, big companies, an Israeli company like Mobileye, are making, in some cases, uh, multi-million dollar commitments, okay, to support Israel. So we hope that that won't just be on the nonprofit side, but there'll be an outpouring of support in terms of making investments in what's traditionally been a, a great place to invest venture capital. 
Uh, John, just very quickly, based on, on what you just said, it is worth noting that Hamas has been designated a terrorist organization by the US and, and the European Union. I, I want to end on asking what's unique about Israel's tech talent. I, I note that NVIDIA was due to hold its AI summit Sunday, Monday of next week in Tel Aviv and cancelled for obvious reasons. But, but from the AI perspective, what is it that Israel has that other countries or regions don't? We have resilience, right? In other words, there, today we're facing a crisis, but there are crises all over the world. In the Ukraine, in you know, Asia, uh, there's a food crisis, a climate crisis. But we are skilled at navigating through difficult times. And we don't take no for an answer. We're pretty, you know, aggressive people. We're sweet and we're loyal. We work really hard. Uh, and in terms of the AI area in particular, we have remarkable companies who are not only developing uh, generative AI or broad platforms, but we have companies that are also developing incredible expertise in these vertical areas, as the one such as you just spoke about in terms of AI for shopping. And uh, I'm going to call Sebastian yes. with some really interesting deals that we can talk about. But the, the reality is that we are going to, we already are leaders in AI, and uh, Sam was just here uh, from OpenAI, but we are going to go beyond AI into all the areas where Israel is strong, whether it's cybersecurity, where 40 cents on every dollar is invested in Israel worldwide whether it's ag tech or food tech, where Israel, more money was invested in alternative protein than the entire European Union, okay, in, in Israel alone, in the cloud, in sports tech, in mobility. And I think that this will continue to grow. We're going to get through this uh, war successfully as yes. we have for the last 75 years, and we look forward to working with our global partners. Uh, John Medved, founder and CEO of our crowd, thank you for your time here on Bloomberg Technology. Okay, social media platforms like X and Meta's Facebook and Instagram are facing criticism for their handling of misinformation amid the Israel-Hamas war. Joining for more and writing about it in Bloomberg Business Week, columnist Max Chafkin and Sarah Fryer, our editor here in SF, the byline on this one, but, but outline what the Business Week article discusses, Max. Yeah, so the, the Business Week article discusses the way that social media historically has been very useful, uh, both for journalists and for outside observers, and even for people on the ground in sort of gathering information, uh, you know, either amid terrorist attacks or demonstrations or whatever. And what we saw um, over the last few days is instead of, a, you know, a lot of, you know, useful information being circulated, just this kind of torrent of kind of misinformation and confusion, um, especially on X. Uh, you know, formerly known as Twitter, but also on, on Facebook and Instagram and some of the other platforms. Um, you know, these social media companies have basically disinvested in news, and, and both in terms of moderating news and in presenting it in a, um, you know, as I would, what I would argue would be a responsible way. And, and we're kind of seeing the results, which is, which is a mixed bag. You know, there's obviously very good information out there, um, but it's kind of mixed in um, with a lot of nonsense. 
Max, bear with me on two things. The first is that sources at X tell me they're working out how to respond to Thierry Breton, the, the EU tech chief who asked them what they're doing about misinformation. But also in the last 10 minutes or so, we've heard from Meta, parent of Facebook, and they have responded to Thierry Breton's same request to them. This is what they say. After the terrorist attacks by Hamas on Israel Saturday, we quickly established a special operations center staffed with experts, including fluent Hebrew and Arabic speakers, to closely monitor and respond to this rapidly evolving situation. Our teams are working around the clock to keep our platform safe, take action on content that violates our policies or local law, and coordinate with third-party fact-checkers in the region to limit the spread of misinformation. We'll continue this work as the conflict unfolds. That is Meta's response. The other point uh, that you make in the Business Week article is that go back, there was a time when Meta and indeed the platform formerly known as Twitter wanted to be the go-to for contemporaneous and accurate information. Yeah, absolutely. So, so two things have happened. One is that both of these platforms, uh, Meta and X, have been under pressure uh, from TikTok, right? TikTok's model is not news. It's, you know, engaging videos. And we've essentially seen these platforms move towards that. That's why when you open up Instagram these days, you'll often see posts that are weeks, if not months old. Even on Twitter, which has been known as kind of, you know, real-time news network, you'll see stuff that's from yesterday, the day before, last week, or whatever. And that makes it just much much, much more difficult to figure out what's going on. The other thing is there are fewer journalistic players on these platforms. You used to have a lot of kind of community moderation happening. So on top of the kind of trust and safety uh, types that we're, we're hearing about in that meta statement or that Elon Musk and, and the ex-management have spent, you know, a lot of the last year, um, you know, cutting back on, uh, we had these, we had journalists basically who were also on the ground were able to kind of sort the wheat from the chaff in terms of what was true and what wasn't. And that is also gone. So, so it's not just that the companies yeah. have disinvested, the community has disengaged. Uh, thank you, Bloomers, Max Chafkin. And X would point out that Community Notes is now in sort of tens of thousands of posts monitoring this. Starting tonight, Bloomberg's Screen Time will bring together industry leaders at the intersection of Hollywood and Silicon Valley. Here's a preview of what to expect. Screen Time, Hollywood. Bloomberg's bringing together leaders, entrepreneurs, celebrities and moguls to speak about the future of the business of culture. And we're doing it here, right in the heart of Tinseltown. Screen Time is where Hollywood and Silicon Valley collide. Content is getting more expensive to make. The number of platforms fighting for eyeballs is growing. There is more choice than ever before. And top of mind is how artificial intelligence is going to change the game for cinema, streaming, live sports and video games. Let's kick it off with looking at the new Netflix. Ted Sarandos, co-CEO of Netflix, takes to the stage to explain how Netflix is figuring out its next chapter of growth. What about the content creators? YouTube CEO Neil Moen talks to us about creator culture and YouTube's new ambitions across podcasts and music. After weeks of negotiations between studios, actors and writers over pay, what does the future hold for Hollywood? Is it finally back to business as normal? We speak to the head of one of Hollywood's biggest talent agencies, CAA, and writer, actor and producer Issa Rae talks about making an impact in Hollywood and growing a portfolio. 
And sure, you've heard about the big numbers behind the box office, but what about the billions of dollars that the video games industry brings in when a new title's launched? We'll look at the future of gaming with leaders from across the industry, including Electronic Arts' Laura Miel, and a discussion on the confluence between video games and the business of culture. Which hit video games titles make for good TV, films, and shows? How many virtual worlds is AI going to bring to life? Riot Games' CCO Brian Wright and Minecraft's Helen Chiang discuss. Along the way, we'll get insight on the performance of sound from Foley artist entertainment industry veteran Sana Kelly, as well as the reveal of Bloomberg Businessweek's Ones to Watch list. Join the filmmakers, writers, producers, and executives that are changing the industry and the investors that are funding that change. This is Hollywood, just not the one you remember. This is the future of Hollywood. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Don't forget, check out the podcast wherever you get your podcasts on the Bloomberg platforms, Apple, Spotify, and iHeart. From here in San Francisco, on our way to Los Angeles, this is Bloomberg Technology. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.